You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at CR's Northern Command on the Westwood One Podcast Network. It is April 26th, late Thursday, but for you guys, you'll be hearing this on Friday. And yes, it's already late enough in April that even on a cold year, I'm finally feeling the terrible symptoms of allergies. Oh gosh, you know, I can't even breathe. So if I start just sneezing all over the place, you'll know where it's coming from. Um, All day today, we have House committee hearing on diamond and silk and the Facebook censorship. And suddenly conservatives think it's conservative to start uh, treating them like a public utility. I don't get it. Let me tell you this, folks, as we spoke about on our last episode, gosh, that was yesterday. Feels like a week. Courts, immigration, borders, national security, and healthcare. Those are the civilization issues of our time. And unfortunately, there's really no party speaking to those issues. One thing that is going on in the news is the case of Alfie Evans in Britain, where most Americans, and I would venture to say probably crosses ideological lines, look at Europe with horror when you see these stories of babies, toddlers, um, being taken off life support, and there's no recourse for parents in government-run health care to actually try to save the kid's life. Now, you might be thinking, well, it's great on this side of the pond. We don't have those problems. Now, the problem with that is, as we've discussed many times and many guests on dealing with health care, and we're going to have a special guest on in a couple minutes, we don't have free market health care in America. So whether you're on the right or you're on the left, Whatever you do want, the reality is the status quo we had before Obamacare, certainly after Obamacare, um, Medicare, Medicaid, VA, even the so-called private is not really private. It's completely subsidized, regulated by the government, and these these are the same companies that get all the Medicare and Medicaid contracts, so it's all in one. And government uses that to leverage policies they want. And what we're seeing in America now, I believe, is a growing epidemic of government using their power, really over all the healthcare funds, to cut off pain medicine to people who really do need it under the guise of dealing with the opioid crisis, which, as we call it, it's really more of a broad drug overdose crisis. Now, many of you have seen, and we'll link to in show notes, I have a seven-part series on this. We've done a couple of podcasts on this, that this is fundamentally one of the biggest misdiagnoses in government history, where fundamentally this is an illicit drug problem, heroin and fentanyl, but also even non-opioid-based illicit drugs, cocaine and meth are skyrocketing. We have painstakingly, with what I would argue incontrovertible facts have traced this back to the 2013-2014 border surge, the collapse of interior enforcement, all of the trends in immigration. You could plot them on a graph directly with the rise in the overdoses, and it's all illicit drugs. Did we have a problem of prescribing? Yes, that was that was part of it. 
Um, it was a baseline increase we had since the late 90s, although you know, mixed with that was always an illicit drug problem as well, and very much the same type of people that were abusing illicit drugs. They were abusing prescription drugs. For the most part, they were prescribed properly. For the most part, they were used properly. Um, circa 20, 2005 to 2010, there clearly was some degree of overprescribing, and then they were policing it. And the medical profession policed it, some states started regulating, and prescriptions began to plummet from 2010 to 2013 before the epidemic level increases. And I mean 200 to 400 to 600 percent increases in deaths in some states from 2014, 2015, 2016, and we see from the state data in 2017 as well. What's government doing? Picture a patient coming in and saying – hey, I think I got a brain tumor. And the doctor says, well, you know, you've had problems with your big toe for a while. You have a gout problem. And heck, it could be pretty painful. And he starts operating on your toe. So that's a double problem because one, you're missing the existential threat. um, And number two, you're gratuitously creating more pain and, and another problem. And that's what government's doing here. They're ignoring, and I would argue exacerbating the border sanctuary problem. I have a lot of news on that, by the way, in the connection with MS-13 um, and fentanyl in Lawrence, Ma- Massachusetts. We'll talk about that next week. But I want to get more to healthcare here. The pendulum has swung the other way. The ship has sailed on the overprescribing. Every doctor I know wouldn't be caught dead overprescribing anymore. Um, I have the data in my latest piece. There's a new analysis that shows just in the last year a 25% drop in prescribing. Um, you know, in most VA facilities, it has dropped 30 to 66 percent from 2012 to 2016. That's the entirety, by the way, of the drug overdose crisis, by the way. And what we're seeing is this crisscross. Prescriptions plummeting, manufacturing of it plummeting. There's morphine shortages. People are in pain. And yet, there's more deaths than ever because, again, it's all, when I say all, all the baseline increases, meaning um, – in the state of Ohio, for example, only 14% of the deaths are from prescription dr- drugs. But 100% of the public policy discussion is over clamping down on more prescriptions. So to introduce our next guest, Stefan Cortez, I want to first give you one more piece of information I haven't talked about enough on the show. In 2016, CDC issued guidance to start cutting down on the duration and the dosage of prescription opioids like oxycodone. And the, gu- the guidance is fine. I mean, it, it needs to be done carefully, although I would argue that, again, that ship has sailed for about a decade. We've you know, seriously been clamping down on it. But now they are leveraging government control of the funding, which, again, Medicare and Medicaid are the big 800-pound gorillas in the room. Um, CMS put out a rule in February warning that they might, you know, given the input that they have, depending on the input, they might implement a rule to codify that in Medicare. And what that means is that they will not fund any payment for oxycodone pills more than 90 morphine milligram equivalents per patient per day. Um, and that will affect 1.5 million people, largely stable patients that are not addicts, although they are dependent on this to live functional lives. 
and to cut it off carte blanche. And again, because we don't have a private public, it's all kind of one mixed venture socialist system. The so-called private take their cues from Medicare because they also administer Medicare Medicaid contracts, and they are also cutting it off. And Dr. Stefan Cortez wrote a letter led by 180 physicians warning that, wait a minute, the pendulum is swinging back the other way. You guys are cutting this off carte blanche. A lot of people are going to be in pain, and you're not even addressing or solving the real problem. Um, Dr. Cortez is a professor in the Division of Preventative Medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. He also works at the Birmingham VA Medical Facility, has spoken all over the country about this issue. He's written amazing articles. I actually discovered him an article he wrote for Slate Magazine. I learned a, a tremendous amount from it. It's colored a lot of my, or really f- fine-tuned a lot of my thinking on this issue. And I just, you know, out of the blue reached out to him. And you know, unlike most people like that who are so busy, he actually responded. And he was happy to come on the show. And I'm finally excited to have a guy who actually knows the issue to discuss the issue. Well, Dr. Cortez, are you on the line? Yeah, I am, and I'm really happy to be here. Well, th- thanks for joining me. And again, from, from a parking lot, I really appreciate you squeezing in that time and your busy travel schedule, um, You know, discussing a lot of these issues. L- let me just start before we get into the the you know the overkill, the problem with CMS's rule of Medicare cutting off um, you know what they call high dosage uh, prescriptions, or at least they won't fund it, which essentially means they're going to cut it off. I want to just discuss the trends. You're from the state of Alabama, and I think that's a great state to launch this to use to launch this discussion. Alabama is has the highest rate of op- opioid prescriptions, higher than West Virginia and, o- and Ohio, which are you know the epidemic states. And it's been that way for quite some time, although like every state, um, relatively, it's been going down, down, down since 2010, 2012. Um, and yet, at least from the data I see, it's ranked number 45 in terms of overdose deaths. And then yeah. what I read is I read in the latest AL.com article, I don't have the the source data they're using, but just to quote them, heroin and fentanyl deaths saw a small decline, meaning at, after the tremendous baseline increase, but you know, very recently, while methamphetamine and cocaine, which aren't even opioid-based, deaths climbed, and there was a significant decrease in prescription opioid deaths. Aren't we treating the wrong thing? Well, I think we're we're at least proceeding in a very imbalanced way right now. So we're very focused on pill control. Uh, I actually accept the idea that very excessive prescribing probably led uh, to the development of our national opioid market. But the effort right now needs to be focused on assuring that people who have addiction have some way to get treatment for addiction. Uh, And the people who have dependence on opioids, it may not be always an entirely um, wonderful situation where they're receiving prescription opioids, but where they're moderately stable, that we don't destabilize those individuals. So we've kind of messed it up right now. And it's true, Alabama is a high prescribing state. There's a lot of reasons for that. And it has been a low overdose state, um, which just gives you a sense that this is a complicated issue. And it isn't as if all addiction and all overdose simply tracks with what happens on the doctor's prescribing pad. 
You know, I'm going to link to this in show notes, this uh, journal article you wrote, a peer-reviewed article, as well as just some of the articles you've written in some media, um, where you discuss, even you know before the big illicit drug crisis, yeah, circa 2013, 2014, uh, still going on, still increasing, but even before where you know it was very much viewed as a prescription drug problem, you wrote that the casual association, meaning the rise in prescriptions, the rise of deaths, is not entirely straightforward. There is poor geographic correlation, which we spoke about, between opioid prescribing and overdose prevalence. And the CDC reported that de novo addiction among patients receiving chronic opioids for pain is infrequent, infrequent at low doses, affecting 0.7% of persons receiving 36 um, milligram milligrams morphine equivalent, rising to 6.1% among persons receiving 120 MMEs. Similarly, most persons treated for prescription opioids, opioid use disorder, do not have any chronic pain diagnosis. And what I saw from your co-author in some of your articles, Sally Sattel, as well as what she wrote as a standalone in a Politico article, that even among the opioid, the prescription deaths, a, a lot of them are mixed with illicit drugs. So they're not your guy that has no emotional problems, no, um, you know, you, you know it, 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 me, me, let, let me ask you this. How many people in this country fit the following description? They're emotionally healthy. They're mentally healthy. They're culturally healthy. It's just the physiological back pain, chronic back pain. They're in terrible pain. The doctor prescribes something and they can't control themselves and take too many or the doctor has a wrong prescription or they're like, screw it, I'm taking heroin, and they die. How many How many people is that? Uh, that's a tricky number. <laughs> uh, we know there's over 2 million people who have opioid use disorder in the country, uh, but that doesn't mean they all started as pain patients. Most of them didn't start as pain patients, but some did. Um, so we don't know for sure. I mean, you, you quote the study that the CDC guidelines cited, which basically says, you know, somewhere south of 8% of people who start opioids for chronic pain develop addiction. Um, most people who have addiction didn't start as chronic pain patients, but some did. Um, and some people were frankly harmed. Uh, to be so, so what we can say is the minority of the people who have opioid use disorder began as pain patients. And if we take all the pain patients who are on opioids um, and simply kind of put them on a ship in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, we're still going to have a ravishingly bad overdose problem. Sure. Uh, that doesn't mean we've served every pain patient well, by the way. I mean, it's not like every person was well served by the opioids they received. Uh, sure. That's far from the truth. Sure. And obviously, like you say, it's a balance. But, the, the you know, I, I watched a hearing yesterday um, from the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Healthcare, and they marked up 57 bills. Even the Democrats were making fun out of it. Like, what, what are you guys doing? Um you know, the Senate side marked up 60 bills. And we're not even, how do you solve a problem you fail to identify? And the premise they're coming from, and I'm, I'm not denying that there's no problem, and certainly 10 years ago with overprescribing, and that, it, you know, sometimes when they could have done with seven days of pills, they went to 30 days and were a little bit lazy yeah, and weren't right. as careful. Um, and we'll talk about that. But, you know, what, what I don't, what I can't get my, wrap my arms around is both Republicans and Democrats and Trump and the attorney general 
whom I'm close with, Attorney General Sessions, and I agree with what he's doing on the border immigration side. But when it comes to health care, he says he's going to, you know, they, they want to just have this kill switch with the DEA, cutting off even more manufacturing of, of opioids. And the premise that I'm hearing from everyone is this, that there's something physiological, chemical in these pills that the evil pharmaceutical companies put in that once you take them, they irretrievably orient your brain in a certain way and you're done. And, and what I'm seeing right. is that there's an element of it, but A, okay. it's mainly in the people abusing other stuff. It's mainly illicit stuff. It's mainly mixed with illicit stuff, and it's a small percentage of the pain patients, and a lot of them live stable lives only because they have it. What am I missing? Yeah. No, I mean, there's at least two parts to this. First of all, there's this great hope that you can arrest addiction if you make sure no pills are prescribed um, or that the number continues to fall rapidly. And if you were to say to me, Stefan, do you want uh, opioid, opioid prescribing in general to be lower over time than it was in the past? I would say yes. The problem is that it's not the case. It really isn't the case that everybody who's prescribed an opioid develops addiction. In randomized trials of opioids for chronic pain, over 50% of patients cannot tolerate the medicine. They're obviously not magical pills if over 50% say, I can't hack this pill. I I can't tolerate the side effects. Um, There is a real percentage who um, benefit, as best I can tell. We can have a long debate uh, with some of my fellow scholars about what (laughs) constitutes benefit. And there are a percentage who are harmed. So certainly not first in your drawer for people who have complex problems. But what you see at the congressional level and at the legislative level and at the health systems level is everybody wants an easy solution. Uh, For a while, we had a complex problem called pain, and everybody wanted an easy solution to that. And the idea was, oh, if we just push out these pills, all this pain will kind of get magically wrapped away, even though pain itself is really complicated and it heavily involves mental health and mental conditions and social situations, all of which ideally should be addressed. So we took the magical solution of pushing pills and uh, got a big mess. Now we're into a new kind of magical solution, which is called pulling pills. And we have a complex problem called addiction. Not everybody gets addiction. Uh, Not everyone's equally vulnerable to addiction. And our thought is, oh, we're going to wrap this up if we can just pull those pills out. Well, that's an easy target if you're a legislator looking for an easy hit uh, and this is some evidence of progress in the next one year or two years, you can make a pill number go down. But sadly, it's again a kind of magical hope that this one avenue is going to change everything. Um, and it, it's it's not very realistic. And, and again, it's interesting. I think what you were referencing there is in the 90s, how you know now government's you know, taking a meat cleaver to this to clamp down on prescribing painkillers. But in the 90s, it was government was largely responsible for pressuring the medical profession to get into it. Um, I had a private conversation a couple nights ago with uh, Tom Coburn, former senator from Oklahoma, but he's a he's an OBGYN, and he says he he still has a letter from CMS, um, you know, encouraging them to get in it. The the fifth vital sign is pain uh, and all that stuff. So it's it you know we we don't have what I feel is that in this country, despite the perception that we kind of have free healthcare in terms of free markets, it really it's not the best science driving the best clinical practices, it's kind of this capricious, erratic pendulum swing, uh, you know, in order to address a political problem. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just scared there's gonna be so much collateral damage here. I, well, 
so two things. One is I actually think the push to prescribe was very much a partnership of private market interests and governmental interests simultaneously, a mixture of uh, this is a good thing to do and this will make money as well. So the pushing of the pills, to me, there's blame to go around. Um, and I am, but now we're in the pulling phase and it's again, uh, a partnership. <laughs> if you're a corporation, you want to contain the liabilities that might apply to you. So you say, well, we'll squeeze down on pills and we can then show our, uh, our public, our stockholders and our government payers that we are contain that liability by reducing the number of people receiving pills. If you're a government agency, um, you're under pressure. Uh, you, you know, the, our, the folks at CMS who actually did revise their plan after they received feedback, they, they were getting OIG and GAO reports saying, you know, this many people receive pills. Uh, those reports didn't really take into account how the CDC guideline was really written, but they just basically said, this many people receive pills, what are you doing? You're asleep at the switch. And so the natural response, if you're a bureaucrat, is to say, well, I'll do something, ASAP. But there is collateral damage. That's my uh, impression from many, many anecdotes and from observing patients. And I'm concerned about people who are being caught in this pendulum and potentially losing their lives. Because, I mean, I, I spoke a while back with um, the Ted Cruz campaign. It's just interesting to just see how this evolved. I, I say Ted Cruz because he was a presidential cam, uh, candidate and he was campaigning in New Hampshire. It's one of the early states and it's pretty much a top three epidemic state. And, you know, we had a presidential election t 2008. We had one in 2012. We had one in 2016. 2008, 2012, this wasn't an issue. We had, you know, it, like many things, it was a general problem in the country. It wasn't an epidemic. It, it suddenly, and, and this is what nobody on the other side of this debate could explain to me, what the blank happened circa 2013 to 2015 to, to precipitate that. And I have my theories on it. But, you know, they went around New Hampshire door to door. They were doing door knocking. And, you know, you could imagine your presidential candidate, you got your tax plan, you got, you know, uh, you talk about Obamacare, certainly, and national security, immigration, and suddenly everyone wanted to talk about the drug overdose problem, that people are dropping like flies suddenly. And that, you know, because this was, let's say, 2015, and that's, that's when it, it started around 2013, 2014. And, you know, I, I live in a very faith based community in outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, you know, the culture is antithetical to drug culture, but nonetheless, the kids, you know, it's tough to raise kids nowadays. And I, in my entire life, I've never seen what I've seen in recent months and years that just people losing children left and right. And they're not yeah. they're not pain it has nothing to do with pain. It's the same culture of drugs that we've had that they get in with the wrong crowd, except now because of the ubiquitous availability and the cheap, pure lethality of the drugs yeah. and it's laced with fentanyl. They don't even mean to die. You know, they're not committing suicide, but they do. That to me is a national security. That's not a healthcare issue. There's what to talk about in healthcare, but that's a national security issue. So there's a poisoning crisis, but the question is what you know. You have to wrestle with the question of, I mean, what will enable us to assure that no one accidentally ingests a poison? Um, when they're not expecting it, you know, they have no tolerance to it, which is either fentanyl, which has fully replaced heroin in many markets, mm -hmm. or heroin, which is admixed with fentanyl or worse, carfentanyl, other kind of strong compounds. Sure. Um, you you kind of have to wrestle with, can you stop the supply of that? Which is, I mean, I'm all for efforts to do that. 
but you're probably going to have to treat people uh, who have addiction and find a way to make that happen, which I think requires some crossing of the political divides in our country in order to sure. do that. Sure. No, I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. And, and, and again, I mean, you're also seeing it. I know in Maryland, there's been a massive spike in cocaine deaths. Um, right. You know, and that's that's not that that's different. That's cocoa. You know, it's it, you it's know, not, what, right, what, it's not an opioid at all. It's not an opioid at all. And 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 I'm seeing. I think maybe Sally to tell her it might have been your article as well. It's it's not just it's it's stimulants. It's it's the opposite. It's tranquilizers, sedatives. Um, a lot of um, what, what's that word with a B? I always mispronounce benzodiazepines. Yeah, exactly. Like Valium and stuff? Yes, I'm seeing that on a lot of the um, drug surveillance reports from state health and human resources data that they're reporting a lot of the um, you know, the deaths that are marked as prescription are really mixed with that. Um, certainly alcohol. Yeah. Um, I, heck, I'm seeing a Ritalin addiction problem. I mean, isn't this much bigger than, than painkillers? Yes. Well, this is kind of a fascinating thing. So I, I fully believe that we prescribers did contribute to this in a big way. I really do believe we contributed to launching a lot of drug market interest. And there are people, you will find people, there's a great guy who does advocacy for recovery named Ryan Hampton, who himself had an ankle injury, a surgery, gone on pills, didn't get off, eventually developed addiction. When his doctor figured out that he should stop prescribing, Ryan went straight to heroin. So that really happened. But, and there's a big but, when you look at uh, drug use patterns, the people who are dying mostly die with multiple substances in their blood or in their body at the same time. Uh, there's an amazing report from Pennsylvania reviewing the overdose deaths of 2017, I think, or 2016, where almost all of the overdose deaths, at least 60% of them, involve multiple substances at the yeah. same time. And I recall, you know, it was a kind of an odd moment in a press conference last summer where then Secretary Price and Kellyanne Conway came out at the same time to speak about what's the Trump administration going to do on overdoses. And Secretary Price said, look, you know, we're going to come up with better treatments for pain. And Kellyanne Conway said, well, we know this is more than just an opioid problem. It's a polydrug problem and an alcohol problem, mm. as if she was correcting him. Um, and <laughs> I thought she was right. I thought she kind of gathered that there's a lot more going on than just what happens in doctor's offices for yep. pain care, although that certainly is a part of the story. Well, but but again, I think timing is important because, you know, it reminds me there's this whole debate over the prison population, too much to this. And what I tell people is we could debate that, but just know that it's plummeted both on a state and federal level over 10 years. So, you know, if you came to me in 2006, yeah. that's one debate. If you come to me in 2018, you have to kind of update your arguments a little bit. And it's a similar thing here. My question is how much juice is there to squeeze out of the supply side of the prescription side of things when, you know, for example, you work at the Birmingham VA, and I know obviously you're speaking as a private doctor, not as, you know, a government official, government policy, um, but I see there's been a 43% reduction in the, uh, of opioid prescribing in that facility. I mean, how much more could, how much more could we clamp down? We've, we've actualized that windfall already. It's, it's, an illicit drug problem. And here's my question for you. In fact, aren't we going to create a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you don't do something to address the supply side of illicit drugs, which I have my own opinions on that, um, 
and you have that rampant, and then you clamp down on the supply of the prescription drugs. They're all saying, you know, the prescription was a gateway to heroin. Sally Sattel says, quote, notably, more current heroin users these days seem to be initiating their op- opioid trajectory with heroin itself. But certainly, right. aren't we going to push them into into heroin? Right. So the so I don't think there's a lot of so the way the juice is being squeezed is by taking high dose patients who are often very vulnerable, very sick individuals and pushing their doses down against their will. To me, that's not preventing addiction, but that's basically the way that health systems show big milligram reduction because mm. in a paper published three years ago, I'm going to get this slightly off, but roughly 70% of the milligram equivalents of opioids consumed were consumed by 10% of the people. So when a health system wants to show big reductions, they will often just find the high-dose people and take those doses down, which actually doesn't have much to do with preventing addiction, uh, since those people are likely dependent. It may not even be safe for those individuals unless they have consented to that, in which case it's certainly worth a try. Um, So I don't think there's a ton to be squeezed there. I'm perfectly, but I'm very supportive of, say, um, starting opioids less often for people who have new pain problems or using just a few days after surgery as opposed to 30. But I think in the end, you have to deal with this reality we just came back to. There's a lot of other things that drive people to become uh, a person with an addiction. Those things are social, they're communal, that you remove one supply, supplies of other things become attractive. Uh, so we, I'm not against supply control, but we're going to have to address the underlying community factors that drive some individuals into addiction. And that's going to be harder work. It's going to require all of us to, to play a role. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, the way I'm oriented, my outlook in life, I certainly don't like being dependent on anything. And I, I understand that you'd want to you know, be as conservative as possible on that. But again, that's, you need doctors and science dri- driving that when you have this meat cleaver approach from government, right. especially at a federal level. I mean, you can't do that because like, like you're saying, I mean, um, what I'm hearing from a lot of doctors – uh, and by the way, you know, folks, email me at dharwitz at crtv.com um, if you're a doctor, if you're a pain patient on either side of this. Uh, you know, what your experience is, what I'm hearing is that there are a lot of patients that they have that are on more than 120 mm's, you know, of, of you know, let's say, let's say Oxycontin. And they're, meaning it's the worst combo because. They're, yes, they're dependent in the sense that they're going to be in a world of pain if you take it off, but you know they they would probably die or without it, and they're living pretty good lives, and they're not, you know, th- there's no evidence that they're going to take heroin or anything. What would happen if you suddenly say no more than ninety mmes? Well, basically, a, a, some number of those people will come down a dose, they might not feel worse, particularly if they're voluntary. And some other number, which we don't know how big the number is, will basically fall apart. They'll fall apart because they become dysfunctional medically, they become dysfunctional psychologically. Some number among them go to the illicit market and try to buy heroin, although a lot of older disabled people do not do that. Um, That would be the last thing they would do. But unfortunately, some number of them will find that they can purchase a gun and shoot themselves, which is a very bad outcome. Uh, could you talk about that? Of protecting their health. Could, could you talk about that more? This uh, you referenced suicide in one of your pieces. I can't remember. Um, is there yeah. a growing trend with that? Um, what we have is limited data. There is a paper published last year that just looked at 
the percentage of people who are taken off of opioids who develop suicidal ideation, which is not to say that they died. Mm -hmm. And that paper found uh, in a review of about 600 individuals, maybe 10% had suicidal ideation. A a small percentage of those actually took violent action against themselves, but they didn't have death in that scientific paper. However, anecdotally, what I've seen is a tremendous number of people expressing ideas and privately um, individuals who are you know, declaring that they lost a loved one due to suicide after termination of opioid medicine. To be fair, addiction can lead to suicide. Opioid dependence can lead to suicide. Untreated pain could lead to suicide. Destabilizing all those things by taking somebody who is currently receiving opioids and may be dependent on them and cutting those opioids can also lead to suicide. So you've got a whole complicated mix of things affecting one person. The problem is the meat cleaver. If you say to every doctor, look, you're under the gun, unless you get this number of patients at a given dose down, and we're going to profile you, threaten you with investigation uh, in various ways, uh, those physicians are not necessarily going to act very carefully. And those patients are very much at risk. And I'm speaking on the basis mostly of anecdotes, uh, but we normally don't do things against people's will when they're currently for better or for worse, dependent. We just don't normally destabilize somebody's care against their will um, when we know there's a chance of death. Um, it, whatever you're going to do with that patient who you've inherited, it has to be done incredibly carefully. And right now, that's not what's happening. You know, I'm, I'm looking at a website right now um, at cms.gov, Medicare Part D, Opioid Prescriber Summary. Um, I could probably look you up. <laughs> um, where I could, Maybe not, because I'm in a federal facility, but yeah, you can oh, look up okay. But I, I could, I could look up what, how much you prescribe, and, and and the point I'm trying to make is, again, it, you know, as a conservative, I, you know, this doesn't sit sit so right with me, but it is what it is, and we have, and all all states have drug monitoring programs. My point is, we've already done this. In other words, yeah, the, the culture, the, the pressure is as is as intent if you're a doctor you're not going to be caught dead over prescribing now and again i agree with you that likely a decade ago clearly there was too much going on and and my fear is that you know as we head into this let, 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 let me put it this way I, i'm curious what you think i have one coffee a day not never more than that but i have one religiously every morning and it's weird. It's only one, but if I don't have it by ten o'clock in the in the morning, I will get a headache and it will degenerate throughout the day. It'll get pretty bad. <laughs> what would you call? Am I am I an addict? Am I an addict? You or have is that a dependency. Dependence. It happens to be a very 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 benign dependence. Um, uh-huh. And with opioids, there's a variety of dependence levels. So there are people who have a pretty benign dependence. Basically, they take opioids for uh, pain. They would not be able to cut off instantly because they've been on them for a while. And in all other respects, they're basically functioning well. And from their point of view, they're getting benefit. And I actually believe they're getting relief. Uh, although I understand, you know, how we could argue that maybe they're just dealing with the dependence. But it doesn't matter in a big scheme of things if they're functioning well, maintaining a job, living in society, uh, making contributions. Why upset the apple cart? Conversely, there are people of different levels of dependence that doesn't work out very well for them. Some of them have full-fledged addiction. That means that they're so focused on their substance that they're actually wrecking areas of their life in the process of addiction. That's a small percentage. 
And then there's a kind of intermediate group, which is actually one of the groups that's most trouble for trouble for physicians and health systems is people who are very, very vulnerable. They don't quite have formal diagnosis of addiction. They're not chasing down pills at every turn, but they're not functioning that well either. Mm. And how we care for those people really is an area where I would see great value for health professionals and health systems to build good systems of care and where I see those folks as being at enormous risk if we simply impose the meat cleaver and say, get these people off pills and come what may. Are you seeing any signs that the folks at HHS, CMS are at least receptive to the pushback or hearing another side to this, that it's not as... Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a big deal that... So I... And then I'm speaking about a guy who's pretty alarmist about this because I have received and seen so many stories of trauma. But the reality in this case is they're under the gun. They have... If you're a government official in HHS, you're getting reports from GAO, OIG, you have to do something. They proposed a policy in February that would have said... Uh, for any patient at over 90 milligram equivalents, the insurer must refuse to pay until they do a prior authorization, which means essentially the pharmacist has to ping the doctor's office. The doctor's office has to send in paperwork to the insurer. The insurer has to approve or disapprove. And they were going to say mandatory. These refusals need to go into place until the insurer reviews, as if the insurer has enormous expertise about these issues, which they don't. <laughs> that policy was frightening, frightening to me, frightening to many of my colleagues. And frightening to colleagues who ostensibly are in different poles of this issue, people who spent their careers calling the alarm bells on opioids, sure. agreed that this policy was dangerous. And CMS, actually, they were open to me, Dr. Sattel, and a friend of mine, Dr. Gordon, briefing them twice. The second time they said, we need you to brief us quickly for a full hour. <laughs> and when they heard from us, they said, you know, it's really nice to hear from the other side here. And they, to their credit, they modified the plan. I'm not saying that they fully have absorbed every aspect of this issue as I see it or as I would have them see it. But the plan that they ultimately put in place is way more humane. And it's largely because of people speaking up, filing comments on the federal docket, and the fact that they were willing to listen. So there is some movement here. Sure. No, and uh, that, that's good to hear because I'm, I'm not really seeing it on a congressional side. No, um, you're not. No, it's They're screaming for dose reductions, <laughs> dose, dose reductions. And, and then also, again, reductions in manufacturing. And what are you seeing? I, I mean, again, I'm just reading anecdotally and what I hear from people, but I'm hearing of morphine shortages in hospitals. Is that is that a widespread Liquid, problem? Yes. Inject specific injectable forms of morphine are reduced. But that, to my understanding, and I'm willing to be corrected, but my understanding is that the Puerto Rico hurricane it really affected the production of certain kinds of injectable opioids that are typically used in hospital management, but didn't necessarily itself damage the production of opioid pills. So hospitals are facing shortages of injectables specifically because of that hurricane. Ah, interesting. Okay. So, I mean, because when, yeah. when I hear of these shortages, again, the media is linking the two, um, but that that's interesting to look into. But I'm... I'm just going based off of DEA announcing that they could shut 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 it down even more if they see diversion. That, that, yes, they are. So DEA is on the different side. So they want they have reduced production by a significant percent. What they what DEA sets is a maximum production quota. That is, they basically say to the manufacturers, I don't know how exactly they deliver this, but each year this is the maximum amount you can make and distribute. 
based on our assessment of need. It is very symbolic when DEA issues those communications and they've reduced those maximums in sequential years. Um, what people who have been involved in policy, and I particularly reference the guy who worked in the George W. Bush administration, who's at Stanford and Key Humphreys, is what he tells me is that they have, historically the manufacturers have never reached the quota. So the, when the quota is set by the DEA, which looks like it threatens a shortage, historically in the past at least, that has not actually led to a shortage nationally of any of the general, you know, of the opioids that people take. I am worried about their proposal for this year because there are some stories that come to me of pharmacies that are essentially out, but I don't have proof that their proposed further reduction is necessarily going to adversely affect patients. However, it just looks to me like a major symbolic communication more than something of substance, which would deal with either treating addiction or trying to figure out a way to help people avoid getting poisoned by fentanyl. You know, de- yeah, de- definitely something to look into, um, you know, w- whether that's linked up because they're, they're pretty adamant about that. And, uh, you know, I, I know the attorney general passed around my articles on the immigration side, but, you know, on the, on the healthcare side, he's really kind of just treating the medical profession almost like the drug cartels. And it's just, yep. you know, this is what I don't understand. I mean, you know, I, I've read the DEA reports on West Virginia, all the reports they put out in West Virginia. And again, sure. a lot of it's, 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 it's illicit. It's not even opiate. A lot of it's meth is a huge problem there. Um, but the, the thing is the Oxycontin, the overwhelming majority of the decedents in there, they didn't get it from the doctors. It was they were peddled from the same drug cartels based in Cincinnati and Detroit. The same people, and then the, you have the secondary folks bringing it into the rural areas. But the same guys bringing in the heroin, fentanyl, meth, they're bringing that in. Um, I'm not, you know, you know what I mean. I, that's a problem, but that that's not a doctor problem. I mean, you, you could have a malevolent yeah, but- doctor once in a while, but. You know, like you could have a bad cop, and in Maryland we had a Baltimore police, you know, caught up with with the drug ring. But you know, it, it's not fundamentally the problem. Yeah, and I think that I'm very worried about the effort to see um, medical care as a criminal enterprise. Um, you know, there part of redistribution is from criminal cartels. Part of redistribution, though does involve the patient who gets 120 pills, takes 60 for their pain, and sells 60. So in those West Virginia communities, I think there were, the Virginia or South Carolina communities, there were counties where the pharmacies were issuing legitimate prescriptions in very large numbers. We don't know the stories behind all the individuals who received those prescriptions, but it seems likely that there's a fair amount where grandma would get a bunch and somebody else would grab half of them because they were just looking for a quick high. And you could argue that the doctor who prescribed to grandma should have been monitoring grandma more closely. But that's different from saying the doctor was a criminal. Um, and right now, most physicians are feeling incredibly at risk professionally, legally, criminally, unless they make this rapid shift in care, which um, very often is not in the patient's best interest. Wow. No, I mean, that, and again, and that's why I started off with the story from Europe. I mean, you, you want science driving. You don't want politics driving this stuff, which is just uh, very scary to me. I mean, one point on that, and I know we're running out of time, um, 
I did an article on the Medicaid expansion and its relationship to this, and the numbers are staggering. Um, you, you talk about West Virginia. Over 70% of the decedents from the drug overdoses in 2016 were Medicaid patients. Um, there is a tool I have here from – where is it? Uh, it is under HHS. I'm forgetting now which agency it is where you could literally compare the trends. So it doesn't show you the type of drug, you know, illicit or, or um, prescription, but it goes based off of payer, Medicare, Medicaid, private. Um, oh, yeah. I've seen the, one of those reports because there was a hearing a couple months ago. And it, it's just – to me, it's astounding. I pull up side-by-side side West Virginia and Virginia. Virginia is a non-expansion state. Alabama is a non-expansion state, but they don't have the data for it, so I couldn't see it. And it, 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 it's, it's astounding. So everything you know trends up circa 2013. But if you look at any Medicaid expansion state, the Medicaid patients skyrockets like nuts. I mean, it. it nah, it's- but that's here's. I would say that medic. But bear in mind that I've been favorably disposed. Full disclosure: I've been favorably disposed toward Medicaid being available. So I'm sure. going to make an argument that's a little different. But the my view of Medicaid and Medicaid expansion states is that it's very typically the case that distressed populations are the folks who are latching into Medicaid at the time that it's expanded. So, you know, the equivalent, so, so there is a role uh, with medications that might be obtained through Medicaid, but I think what's really happening is you're grabbing up into uh, the Medicaid program, the people who are at highest risk to begin with, people who are often single unemployed adults sure. with a lack of the kind of community supports and connections that you would want people to have to develop work, to, to make a contribution in one way or another. Um, so I see, you know, I don't see, I personally don't see you're Medicaid saying correlation as spiking this. You're, you're saying uh, beyond causation, it's correlation that to begin with, this was always the demographic that were probably already yeah. hooked into meth, heroin, no matter what. So, you know, you put so, them on, on Medicaid, they'll abuse, you know, they're, they're more prone to abusing it. But I, I think the one thing that I do see with causation a little bit is, um, you know, I, I always tell a story. Uh, the only ailment, thank God, I have are, are spring allergies, and I found yeah, nothing you. works for me but the steroid-based nasal sprays. Um, you know, the Flonase yeah. just doesn't. You know that stuff, and obviously the Claritin just doesn't just doesn't do it for me. And I mean, this stuff is really expensive. It's it's three hundred, four hundred a pop, and it's pretty small. You know, so if you want it to last you for the full two months of peak season, you know, it's going to cost me twelve hundred dollars. And I'm just I'm not going to pay out of pocket. Yeah, I'm just not going to pay twelve hundred dollars. So what I do is I pick the worst few weeks, and you know, get one, pay a few hundred dollars, and then the rest I'll I toughen it out with uh, Sudafed, other stuff. Um, but if, if, if you told me I didn't have to pay, heck, I'd binge that thing so that when I'm on radio and doing TV, <laughs> I never have that tissue lit flying out. I never even have the inkling to sneeze. And what, what I'm seeing, and I have tons of data on this Medicaid piece trying to dig up here, is that when you tell me the, the visit to the doctor is absolutely free, the follow-up is absolutely free, um, the the prescription is is a dollar for who knows how many uh, – Oxycontin. I mean, that's that's where you're going to see the doctor shopping because there's no inherent financial check on it. 
And, and that's yeah, my I concern it. with I mean, it. There's that, that's the moral hazard argument, right? That's, that's the idea. I mean, and the challenge is when you – so if you're right that people will consume a whole lot of everything if there's no cost to it. And if you're a distressed individual, you know, the reality is why do so many opioids get prescribed in complicated human situations where – we would argue in retrospect they shouldn't be. It's because they have complicated forms of distress where mm. the actual resolution would, might involve maybe some physical treatment, but maybe some mental treatment, and maybe getting involved in scouting or in getting a job. I mean, all those things can help restore you from your own distress. Um, so I guess that's a totally, I think it's a fair point. The flip side is that I would want to build up the alternative ways of obtaining um, resolution, connection, and resolving isolation, which are all things that, to my mind, drive people to doctor's office complaining about things that hurt, some of which um, are just terrible diseases, but some of which are essentially pain that has come to feel horrific because the person doesn't know how to present the real need, which is social, spiritual, uh, occupational isolation and disconnection from others. Yeah, no, I mean that, that that that's the thing. By the way, on Medicaid, it's just an amazing data point. I'm reading that, you know, they talk about the quadrupling of overdoses from painkillers from 1999 to 2013, according to 2016 Health Affairs study. Guess guess what else happened over that same period? Out of pocket spending on opioids declined. Right. I mean, in by, every category, we spend so much on everything, though. Like we we have a complicated, messy system, um, which. Uh, if you're ever interested in watching debates on this, I, I have a lot of discussions on YouTube with Dr. Tom Huddle, uh, who co-teaches with me at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Better, I co-teach with him. He's the director. Uh. But the, the complicated nature of our system is that we both have high expense from the private payers, high expense from the government payers, and high expense out of pocket all at once. And, and all the middlemen. <laughs> yes, every middleman gets a take. Yep, all the all the yeah, PBMs and the you know bill the the yeah the yep. the, the um, bill payers yeah obviously uh, but but it's just interesting that the out of pocket payment declined from four dollars and forty cents to to ninety cents roughly a factor of four to one almost commensurate with with the increase and. Um, Oh you know, wow! I'd love to see that. Send it along. I, yeah, mean, I want to look at it. Yeah, we're we're gonna have to trade a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I need to see more more of your stuff. And and that's the thing. I need to get better educated so I could you know give over to some of these members, organize these these hearings. I know we're running out of time. I could talk to you forever. One quick question, um, you know, so someone that's roped into heroin, is there really a way to get them out of it? Is there a fact fact based evidence based treatment that that's shown to work? Yeah, I mean, on average, in so first of all, on average, in randomized control trials, the treatment that seems to be effective involves access to a medication that binds to the very same receptors, sometimes in a different way. Um, and for most of those people, they will also wind up needing social and psychological support in the process, but making sure, so, but one part of the treatment that clearly is effective is medication. Those medications include methadone, which is still for many people, a dirty word. Buprenorphine, which is usually packaged with an opioid antagonist, means opposing opioid medicine at the same time, that's called Suboxone. Uh, and the, uh, the third that's now market approved is Vivitrol or um, 
long-acting naltrexone. Those three medicines have efficacy. That doesn't mean that they work perfectly for every person. That doesn't mean that every human being who's ever had addiction has to receive a medicine for it. Uh, but, you know, in randomized trials, they're effective. So they have to be part of the picture. Wow, for sure. And and folks, I mean, this is the type of discussion we need to have in Washington. Just the facts, what is actually going on? And this is not even a right or left issue. It's just so vital. Um, I mean, like I say, I, I mean, I, I see it in my community. Everyone sees it. Um, you know, w- one thing I'm seeing just interested with, with the, all the state data I'm going through, I like going through the state data because a lot of them do have more up-to-date 2017 um, picture. Yeah. And what, what I'm finding interesting is that overwhelmingly these deaths are younger and they're yep. men. What does that tell Young you? Young men – well, I think drug use – disorder is somewhat more common among men um, and access going into the illicit market and buying stuff. I mean, plenty of women have addiction don't, and, and do wind up getting heroin and fentanyl and dying. But um, younger adults are more likely to develop addiction. There's a meaningful contingent of people who will qualify as having addiction in their 20s, uh, even early 30s, and then remit as they get older. And that's why I said carefully that addiction medicines need to be available, but not everybody's going to resolve that way because there's a significant number of people who do have addiction, even to opioids, where it remits as they take on new responsibilities and find new paths in life. So younger age is very much associated with uh, the kind of addiction where you wind up buying heroin, uh, fentanyl, and overdosing and dying. Um, Women are still very, very vulnerable. And one of the problems there is even though the total, you know, typically the overdose figures, as I recall, are higher for men. Um, our treatment system is built, built around men, so it can be very, very hard to figure out where to treat a woman who has an addiction. Uh, because oh. uh, if they need to be in a residential oh. facility, many of them can't accommodate women, and many of those women have a history of trauma for men, and they don't want to be around Ooh. men, which is totally understandable. So wow. um, despite the fact that there's a difference in numbers, there's actually an incredibly important need to figure out how to serve the women. That, that's fascinating because I saw somewhere that there are actually more female pain patients, but yeah, but less overdoses. Yeah, um, I can't say I can say for sure that women are more likely to use healthcare. I don't think I've ever checked the stats on pain patients. I have, I have to take your word for it. <laughs> um, but right, I mean, so that again kind of hints at what leads people to to trouble and to death um, is not a simple function of where was the prescription written, who's writing it. But what you're catching when you sit within the halls of Congress, and I, not every hearing, but I've listened to a few of them online, is the notion of we can just control the pills, this problem is solved. Actually, I remember Vermont Governor Pete Shumlin published, sure. uh, was published as a quoting in the New York Times basically saying this is an easy problem to solve. Um, this problem didn't happen until doctors started to hand out oxycontin like candy. I'm paraphrasing. Sure. If we just got put our minds to it, we could fix this problem with a click of our fingers. Oh my god! Um, as if, I mean, that's that in that kind of thinking. Um, I mean, oddly enough, Vermont, to Vermont's credit, has one of the more developed treatment systems. So there's good stuff going on there. But that kind of simplistic thinking that you just latch on to one little piece and you're going to solve everything is magical thinking. And that's not how complex social problems are solved. 
Exactly. And and again, at least, you know, in this dis- just in this discussion and it's just, you know, just one hour here, we've covered a lot of the the factors, the demographics, the data, and, and that's what bothers me. They've held a number of hearings. They've marked up now over 100 pieces of legislation, but they've never held a hearing on the ABCs. What is the yeah. nature? What is it? What are the trends? What, yeah, what's what are, the problem? What is addiction? What is pain? Wh- Why do we treat these things the way we do? Because, look, I'm a conservative politico. I'm, I'm pretty new to this issue. I didn't touch it until a couple months ago. And even I didn't know a lot of this. And I just – I mean it wasn't even from a political perspective. I just started researching this. And I'm saying, wait a minute. Are we – I understand how things were very murky in 2014, 2015. Like people started dropping like flies. Where is this, where is this coming from? What's going on? And they just said, yeah, well, this is just a continuation of this evil you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies. But I, what I'm saying is now to me the data is becoming very clear. And again, from my you – know, I've, I've had border agents that told me from 2010 – 2013, I've you know I dealt a lot with that crisis. That they predicted a lot of this, and um, you take a society where culturally you have this vulnerability and you meet it with that supply, you're gonna have that problem, irrespective of whether you burn every oxycotton pill ever made and invent it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, and I think, I mean, I think um, part of the challenge is first of all, this is a horrendous tragedy. So. One of the things that happens in the middle of a major tragedy with 40, you know, 42,000 overdose deaths in which opioids were involved, and they're not always the only substance, is amidst tragedy, everyone is grasping with a certain desperation for a solution. And even as I criticize and want to criticize some of these solutions, I, I, you have to sort of at least tip your hat and say that even the most bloviating congressperson who you're annoyed with is reacting to the fact that there are people in their district who have come in and said, I lost my child. I lost my 25 year old. Exactly. And they've heard that story many, many times. So we're all grasping amidst tragedy at something. And the desperation with that, with which we grasp is driven by our own humanity, which is a good thing. And the challenge is that we're also all just learning this. I mean, yes, you're learning in just the last few months. The reality is, even though I've been thinking about this issue very deeply for a few years, I still call friends and I say, I ask them, am I getting this wrong? Can you please look at my slides? Am I mistakenly stating something that's either too unfriendly or too friendly to any given point sure. of view? Because it, it, it get, help me get the science right. So I, I think all of us have to learn. And unfortunately, the challenge is amidst tragedy, you're supposed to look like you know it all. <laughs> uh, we do want to look like we have an immediate solution. In the realities, we're all still working out pieces of this. And it requires a little humility to admit that. Exactly, and that's the thing. I mean, you you know this from being a doctor. You, you got to diagnose something before you have a solution um, and a prescription. And and I just feel like we skipped that whole diagnosis phase. And particularly now, <laughs> with you know CDC, it was very clear. You know, I, I emailed them, and you know, to their credit, they answered back when they put out this big statement: thirty percent increases. You know, twelve year um, over twelve months. Um, in uh, ER visits for overdoses. And they had a lot of good data in there. Demographic breakdown, yep. geographical breakdown. There was one thing they didn't have. What drug was it? What, uh, was it Oxycontin or was it heroin fentanyl or was it meth? And I'm like, no, well, we, don't, we don't have that. Well, I mean, th- th- that, that's a big, 
th- that's a big piece of the puzzle. I mean, you really got to know that because uh, that that gives you a very different picture as to wait. You know, have we peaked with the prescription drug crisis? And now, you know, I, I didn't need the CDC because I had the state data, but now CDC does have preliminary data all the way until September 2017, and the trends yeah. are very clear. It is. I mean, yeah. if the newest trends are clear, that finally, finally. Not just leveling off, but the prescription deaths, like in Alabama, are going down. Thankfully, yeah. Um, even as They're other stuff, in my county. Yeah. I, I, so, so I mean, I'm not trying to deny that there's what to do, what to target in a targeted way. Maybe there's a certain population we could, you know, work with. But across the board, um, you know, when you see these people dropping in their 20s. Now, once in a while, you could have a chronic pain issue, but I mean, when you see data like that, you know, for the most part, it has nothing to do with that. It's it's the, you know, the cultural stuff that it's now laced within. I, I've had border agents tell me, um, off the record, that they have seen mar- um, marijuana laced or fentanyl laced marijuana coming over. Wow. Yeah, I heard that only by rumor. So I can't say I've, I haven't been able to confirm that. Sure. But yeah, I've kind of heard the same story. The, the media has reported it with cocaine. That that already, yep. I think, is reported. I, I saw one article in Florida that there's speculation this girl might have died from, from marijuana with fentanyl in it, but I don't think it's ever been confirmed. But I mean, again, if that's true, that's game over. I mean, that's that <laughs> you could, you know, I saw one Democrat. Um, Official said today they want to spend a hundred billion dollars. I, I mean, you you could huh. throw whatever money you want. That, that's you know, if, if if Bashar Assad comes to our border and has a distribution network of nerve nerve agent, and I say let's go after the morphine in the hospitals. I mean, it has nothing to do with anything. It just it's not. Yeah, th- that's not where it's yeah, at. I mean, I mean, so the challenge you hear that I would hear from people who are opposed to supply control, and I, I'm kind of sit in the middle on this one. They will say, look, you control the supply of this one, something else comes up in its place. So they basically would say supply control doesn't work. Sure. I, um, yeah, yeah, I but there's supply control. With that. But, but, but there's supply control on American health care, and then there's sovereignty and borders. And I mean, again, that's a whole different discussion, but I'm not advocating that we have a war on drugs. I'm advocating that we do the things that I believe we should do to control our sovereignty, and it would take care of yeah, a lot that of that. And, and, and let, let me just say why I'm saying that. What I find very disingenuous about that argument is this. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, Daniel, there's a massive epidemic. You have no idea. And they're like, well, okay, here's what it is. The sanctuaries, the 287G program was gotten rid of. You had the UACs. Okay, do these 10 things in immigration. Daniel, going after supply of drugs networks. Well, well, but you said it, 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 it can't both be natural and then a crazy spike. I'm asking a question. What happened in 2013, 2014? I'm not saying that I could kick drugs out of America. I'm saying no, this degree of ubiquitous nature where – the price is so cheap that any kid could get a hold of it. That that's what I'm trying to address is if if we got into that sudden that's not natural. You could plot this on a graph. There's nothing natural about what happened circa 2014. That's insane. Um, I have a theory behind it. I'd love to hear what their theory is because they always say, "Well, the people you know they they went from prescription to heroin." Okay. Fine, but that would be a gradual baseline increase that wouldn't be an insane, precipitous 
thing coming out of nowhere. Yeah, you have to somehow theorize that there was a, a coalition or a coming together of multiple bad things at once. Um, and, and I'm not, I don't think I know. I mean, I, I, part of it probably is people who were pulling on the pill market, the redistributed pill market switched over. Uh, the market suddenly got more poisonous too, though. That's your point. Like sure. if you were expecting to buy heroin and you got fentanyl and you didn't know that that was going to be that, you can die right away. Um, there's also a lot of work done by these two economists, um, Case and Deaton, who talk about the slow unraveling of American working class and middle class communities, not all of them, but sure. a meaningful number where there's loneliness, lack of work, um, increasing seeking of solace and drugs or alcohol. So there's kind of these longer term trends underneath it. Sure, but, but, but I mean, uh, that's doctors, a 50 year old West Virginian coal miner. That's not your yep. suburban New Hampshire 20 year old child of a middle upper class family. You know what I mean? And you see, you meet those people too. So it's, I mean, I, I can't, you know, other than waving my hands about 10 directions at once, <laughs> I, I find it very hard to, to, to sort of come down on, you know, even one or two or three things. It also seems to me like it's all these things at once. But I, that's a very, I know it's an unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory statement. Sure. No, and, and I understand that. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I come out with, with, with bold statements to try to pull people in a different direction. And, uh, you know, I do believe strongly just because my background is not healthcare, it is very much an immigration policy. And I, I just see it. I see the connection. It's, 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 it's astounding. The media is now, even the mainstream media does recognize the MS-13 crisis. And again, that yep. came in with the 2013-2014 UACs. We had the head of the Border Patrol Union on our show last week, and he was talking about whenever you see these, you know, the flood of these you know, teenagers, families coming over, what a lot of people don't understand is that um, people don't wake up one day and say, hey, I want a better life in America. I'm just going to co- come over. You have to pay uh, a smuggler, and Somebody. all the smuggling routes are run by drug cartels, varying ones depending if you're in the east or the west, but by one of the five or six drug cartels. And when you know, when Obama and during Obama's second term, we've always had loopholes and and vulnerabilities, but in his second term, unlike even his first term, his second term, he really openly suspended so many i mean i just today i saw from the university of uh, syracuse track data they have all this just, they have just like clearinghouse of data on all sorts of things they have immigration data you can literally plot in a graph immigration judges letting people go um and you know 50 60 percent rates that skyrocketed when 2012 2013 2014 you know all of that and all of the not the secondary but the primary distributors are all foreign nationals and you know it's very hard to land a conviction in American criminal justice when it's a foreign national. You you just throw them out, but you know we're not. And oh that's, wow, right. You deport, but then you, they could continue to. I guess would they? Is it is it is the theory here that they might be deported but continue to engage in the drug trade and prevent the reimportation of highly toxic? Sure. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's garbage in, garbage out. Meaning the same way we got here within a few years, according to DEA, the poppy fields in Mexico tripled. From 2013 to 2016, and part of that again is because every single person who crosses over, whether they're a drug mule, whether they're a bad person, whether they're just seeking a better life in America, they still the proceeds all went to the drug cartels, and that oh, wow. that is why there's a whole another aspect to this. And you know, even if someone draws a different conclusion than I am, I'm just very disturbed that we're not even discussing this when you know in a state like Ohio, which is one of the worst states. 
you know, 80% of it is this. This is the the problem. And so certainly, that's, you wow. know, and, and as bad as Oxycontin, you know, ODs are, it's it's still more controlled than something these guys are going to put together, um, you know, in their in their labs in in, in Mexico. And uh, and that's the thing. Uh, Texas DPS, we had a hearing on this, um, Department of Public Safety. They proved that um, it used to be the drug cartels were kind of di- uh, different, distinct from MS-13. The gangs had their turf. They had their purview. In recent years and around around the beginning of the decade, MS-13 became the distributors. So when you see circa 2013 to 2015, the increase in MS-13, boom, that, that's your heroin fentanyl crisis. That's their handiwork. What about domestic manufacturers or Chinese importers, though? I mean, part of the story with at least fentanyl is that you can, you can ship those things. Exactly. Where's the, where the ship to? It's mailed to the Mexican drug cartels. Um, that is the oh. main... That is the main problem. Now, now, look, if you're – and I don't mean to be casual about this, but if you're an individual that you know, just for your personal consumption, I want me some fentanyl, and you go and, and go on the dark oh internet and you order that, I don't mean to be too callous here, but as a public policy issue, I'm not I – mean, if you want to swallow Drano, I'm not going to stop you. I mean the, the, the national security epidemic issue is that it's the drug cartels that get it shipped to them and Got they it. lace the heroin. And now we're seeing even cocaine, questionably whether it's even marijuana, which would be so – you know it's unfortunately in my view so much in use, but it is in use. And um, that – there's a whole other aspect to this, but 99% of the energy is on healthcare. There's what to say. But all yeah, I'm saying is, I would pr- I would give thanks to God to go back to pre 2013 levels when we were saying the war on drugs failed. You know, I, I would love to go yeah, back to no, that. I get you completely, and it seems like that's a. I mean, you're kind of convincing me as we're talking. I can, now I want to read more and sort of digest. You got to read my seven part series on this. <laughs> but I want to listen and read, um, and I think I think. But what we can agree on here is that the, that what we're dealing with has more than one moving part. And there are only one or two parts where uh, officials in Washington are easy and comfortable talking. And unfortunately, the part that they're most comfortable talking about involves doctors, health systems, <laughs> people who actually want to do good and who will listen to them. And pharmaceuticals. In the process. Yeah, and pharmaceuticals. And in the process, patients uh, might get crushed, which uh, to me seems like a pretty bad outcome if that happens. And, and, and just for, for a disclaimer, I know you have a lot of disclosures. You, you're you're so careful about that. It's amazing, you know, what you invested in, what you didn't, and you know, oh yeah, p- people accuse me of, oh, you're you're for the pharmaceuticals. I mean, anyone who listens to me or sees my Twitter account for even one day, I call it the healthcare cartel. I have no love for American healthcare system. Um, it is not about that. I just want to get to the truth, and you know, it's just it's a diversion. I don't love the pharmaceutical companies, but you know, no, everyone hates them. I mean, on all sides. So it's. It's a very easy bogeyman, but um, you know, again, I, I had someone tell me indirectly that you know Senator Ron Johnson, who's the chairman of the Senate uh, Government Oversight Committee, um, and he said I just can't touch the immigration aspect of this, and and it's really sad because I don't care whether you want limited immigration, whether you want five million immigrants a year, we should all agree that you know if you're caught in a local jail and you're a foreign national peddling drugs you're out of here yeah but you know the sanctuary city issue has unfortunately become so political but again you know there's this whole debate over oh there's so many good people doing the jobs americans want to do look 
if we're talking about a guy, the sanctuary city issue by definition means someone was picked up in a local or federal prison and ICE is putting a detainer on them. 99.9% of the time, it's not just because they're here illegally. By definition, they were doing something else. And the most common element of that I've heard from all sorts of sheriffs is drug charges. And unfortunately – a lot and, and look, you know you know this, Stefan, even on my side of the aisle, a lot of this is you know, people are like, Oh, I'm sick of the war on drugs. Legalize this, legalize this. And what I'm trying to tell people is, look, we're not talking about a drug crisis anymore. We're talking about chemical warfare. This is not marijuana. This is, you know, th- this is with, with fentanyl, this is a whole new aspect. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, it's it's statecraft, diplomatic aspects with china as well um but i'm just i'm just jarred by the fact that you know let's just use ohio data for example 14 percent of the deaths are prescription and as we said a lot of that's really mixed a lot of that is you know yeah, a lot of them involve a cope you know another substance in the same person who died another substance a lot of that is individuals that they you know they were prescribed right um there's other there's other issues with them and or 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 they just didn't get it from their doctor um i saw that what what, what's that big massive survey the government does every year the national survey on drug use and health bigo i I, I forget the acronym every time it was something uh i i think it, it, it was it your article or is it sally that Roughly three quarters of the abusers of prescriptions did not come from their personal oh, doctor. Yeah, from a, yeah, that's right. So that's the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Um, so um, the basic finding is that most people who report having misused a pain type of pill, a prescription type of painkiller, most say they did not get it from a single doctor. Although then when they're asked, well, where did the person who gave it to you get it from, it's usually from a doctor. So we doctors are part of the chain when someone misuses prescription pills, but it's very often not necessarily the person we just gave it to, the person they redistributed it to, which means we have to be careful. Actually, that's a strong argument for either not prescribing opioids when you really don't have to, like a sprained ankle, uh, that kind of thing, or to providing a small number because most people never finish the pills. And why do you want pills sitting on a bathroom, you know, sitting in the bathroom that no one's going to take? Or at the very least, make it easy to get rid of them. Uh, make it easy to dispose of them safely. No, for, for, for sure, for sure. But it's very hard to set a national standard, as you guys um, noted on that. Uh, you, you just remind me of just, just one, one interesting question I had on the, on the medical side. Uh, you know, someone who's really in bad shape and they're, they're doing heroin and all this stuff um, – Naturally, aren't they going to have a lot of physiological problems resulting from that that will make them in a lot of pain and it, it, you know will be a legitimate prescription then? No, I mean I, I, I've read this I, yeah. I read this riveting account of this I gotta send this to you and I don't remember it was this Philadelphia ER doctor wrote an article in the Washington Post and just he wasn't even take so much taking a side. He was just it was a riveting narrative of what type of position these guys are put in every day. And he talked about this heroin woman coming in every day and he didn't believe her, but then then he discovered it probably was an ulcer. And I'm just Ah, yeah. Misjudged. Yeah. But it's so 
whatever pain, pain, the thing that we're calling pain, particularly chronic pain, is itself a, an experience that is related to, in part, what signals come from the body, but ultimately your brain decides that you are in trouble. And that pain experience is a brain-generated experience. And the reality is that the people who are the most troubled, the most vulnerable, the people who have the most illnesses and the most social stresses, including past addiction, if not current addiction. For them, pain is often much more prevalent. So as you if you decide you want to take care of vulnerable people, you want to take care of people who have high rates of addiction, who have high rates of social distress, and I mostly work with homeless people most of my wow. career, you're going to see people who have many of the behavioral risk factors that make opioids potentially a bad choice, but who have really awful experiences of pain where, you know, part of what's going on is their brain is taking a physical cue and saying, I'm in deep, bad shape right now. And that's because their lives have been catastrophic. And, you know, the tricky thing about opioids is actually they affect not just your perception of pain, but your emotional experience of pain. I mean, that's precisely what makes them great and what makes them horrible. I mean, they both... Uh that emotional effect of opioids is the thing that makes them particularly helpful for severe pain. And it is precisely the very thing that makes them addictive. Uh, you mentioned disclosures. I should say, just so people know, the biggest involvement I've had with pharmaceuticals is that when I, I have a stock and the broker purchased some Abbott and some Merck, which were about 3% of my assets for a while, and then I told them to sell them but I've never done any business, taken any favors, any dinners, any contracts, any honoraria, or anything for pharmaceutical companies. They are just not interested in a person who spent 22 years doing homeless health care. I'm not going to make them any money. So they don't they don't go after me, and I don't go after them. And, and that's why it was such an honor to have you on. And, and I know I asked you for a half an hour, and I stole a full hour from you, and you got to travel. I need to let you go. Um, I'm just oh, enjoying yeah, this. Should, yeah. I'm enjoying this so much. Um you know, thanks for all your time, and you know, you truly, really are kind of just a very fair person on this, um, folks. Just send me your your messages on Twitter, uh, email me. Let me. I'm know, interested. Yeah, absolutely, and let me know what you want me to ask, Doctor Cortez, because um, now you're going to become my kitchen cabinet expert on this issue. Um, the little influence I do have with members, I, I really want them to get this right. Um, you know, again, I'm a partisan conservative, but this is such a this issue is just, yeah. you know, it, it, twice as many people died as from car accidents, and, and we got to diagnose it right. We got to do what's right here. Um, you know, we, we can fight about the other stuff later. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, w would you be willing to come back sometime? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. It's been really enjoyable to talk with you. You, you as well, and I've certainly learned a lot and will continue to, to learn even more when we post on our show notes your journal articles um, as well as some of your, your media articles and appearances so our listeners can get a better sense of what you've been doing and the stuff you've been accomplishing, advocating um, a balanced approach here. Uh, thank you for joining us, and thank you all for listening. God bless you all. Until next week, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 